Women making waves. We went to see our family, and there were six of us there, and we had there was so much noise because everybody needs to get out their own story. Mm. And sometimes you can't do that on Zoom, can you? Well, no, because you can really only hear one person at a time, or it just becomes a big, a big exactly. messy muddle. Yeah, exactly. So we got on and we caught up with all the things that we need to to tell people what we had done and we listened to what everybody else had done. And the one interesting part to it, well, it was all interesting, but this is something I'd never heard one of our daughters talk about, was investing their money. She saved up a little bit of money from not going out through lockdown. And so I really take my hat off to her. She's saved and still continues to save, even though we've gone past lockdown. Now restrictions have finished and we're able to go out. She's still got the money. And she was talking to my husband and her brother about her group of friends don't talk about money and what they can do mm. with their little investment or anything they want to do invest. And she said, it's probably because I'm not interested, but I'm now interested because... I do have some money I have saved. So it was it was something that really caught my attention in the sense that I don't think women talk about investment as much as we probably yeah, ought to. Yeah, that's true, actually. It's not a topic of conversation I would ever think to have with my mm. female friends, actually. You're right. It's a male thing. And, and it's not no disrespect to the men and, and them doing that, but I think we haven't given ourselves an opportunity to talk about it, let alone have money to to invest. But if we if we talk about it more, then we would probably think more about saving a bit more money to do that and not maybe going on holidays too much or maybe investing so that we could go on a bigger holiday maybe in a few years' time. I don't know. I don't know how this works. But it was an interesting aspect that I'd never thought about with my own two daughters and maybe with your daughter that might happen too in a time when she thought she once she it. she stops being a perpetual um, student yes <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> not much investing there except well, yes, yeah. that's right yeah yeah so that was good so and of course that really goes on to our guest our first guest doesn't it sarah turner founded angel academy way back in 2014 and Really looking forward to hearing what she has to say about women investing. It's uh, it is something I'm very interested. In. I'm very scared to invest my money because I'm I'm always worried about losing the hard earned yeah. you know and hard saved money that I have. Exactly. So you know people do say if you've got anything spare that you can lose, then investing is really really good. And I I you know. At being a bit tight, I don't really feel I can lose any of it. You know, that is my worry. But great to hear what Sarah has to say about that. And then, of course, we're moving on to animals. Everybody likes animals, don't they? You've got your dog. I used to have my cats. Yeah, we, well, we all love animals. I think we are a nation of animal mm -hmm. lovers. I think most countries are. But as you say, our second guest this week is Rebecca Willers. <laughs> And boy, she is director of Shepworth Wildlife Park as well. And what a what an interesting lady. Yeah, indeed. It's no secret. She was brought up amongst animals. You know, she's brought up in a conservation park, really, by her, her mum and dad, who, who kind of accidentally, as you'll hear her say, started looking after lots and lots of animals. I, I, I still think what an amazing <laughs> way to be brought up. You know, we always had dogs in the house. 
But it's it's not quite the same as having all kinds of wildlife that you're looking after and people are bringing along various animals as well. Amazing. Incredible. Would you, would you have liked to have done something like that, actually, Susan? Ah, it's a good question, Linda. And if if maybe if I had been asked to do it at a certain age, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't have said no. So who mm. knows? When I was younger, definitely. Yeah. I think I'd have been very, very keen. Yeah. Now I would just think, oh, all that mocking out. <laughs> yes, you know? yes, that's right. I know, <laughs> I know. All the vet spills. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. There's a lot to be to be said about running that place and we'll hear all about that from Rebecca it's an absolute eye-opener and what she's been through as well is quite interesting isn't it? It is, very interesting story You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness This show is all about women doing extraordinary things Today we meet Sarah Turner, who is an angel investor and co-founder of the fast-growing and award-winning angel network, Angel Academy. Angel Academy invests and connects female-founded and co-founded tech startups with mainly female investors. Well, it's great to have you here on Women Making Waves, Sarah. Perhaps we could just start by asking you exactly what an angel investor is. Could you just tell us a little about what you do? Of course, yes. So an angel investor is an individual, somebody like me. Um, They've normally made a little bit of money there later on in their their career so they have a bit of money to play around with and we're investing a sensible amount of that money into early stage companies so rather than more traditional investment products which go into funds which are managed by other people we're choosing companies and we're putting some money directly into those businesses. Okay, that's what you do. That is an angel investor. Yes. So I, the, the next thing is, how did you get into it? Because in an interview recently, you said that you have, well, you love talking with people and you're a, a technologist as well. And you're really interested in technology. So where did it all begin for you? It came out of that interest in technology. I'd, I'd been doing some work with startups companies, all all technology companies. These companies often need some money at the start of their journey in order to be able to to grow. And I was supporting them by making introductions to relevant people, some of whom were investors. And then after a while, I thought, well, shouldn't I be investing as well? I'm meeting these companies. Um, It'd be kind of, you know, useful to know a little bit more about it. So Most angels invest via networks. They could be informal, they could be formal. And so I joined a couple and, um, you know, haven't looked back since. You originally did a degree in history and politics, Sarah. What kind of career did you have in mind at that stage of your life? (laughs) I had absolutely (laughs) no idea, but it was what I had been interested in at school. And I graduated, I then went traveling for a little bit, then came back and had to get on with real life and sort of started looking around. And it it was a recession at that point in London. So I was kind of picking up bits and pieces of temporary work, but nothing I really felt I could get my teeth into. And then I found this um, MSc course um, being run by the University of Brighton that was a conversion course for people who had arts and social science backgrounds in order to go and work in the technology industry and I thought actually that's quite interesting and I mm. I did that and 
that was my entry into uh, into technology. Sarah, your dynamics of your family, were you the first to go to university or the second that you'd all, your family are all at, been at university? I want to know why you sort of changed tack and decided in the 90s that you wanted to do technology because... I mean, that was quite forward thinking, I suppose, in some ways in that it, stage. <laughs> I suppose it was. And it wasn't something that really been on my radar before I, I found out about this course. Neither of my parents went to university, actually, until, well, it's not quite true. My mother just picked me to the post. She did <laughs> a, a part time degree at Birkbeck as a mature student. So she just got in there before me. But, you know, neither of my parents had been university educated as, as young people. My dad had joined a company as an apprentice. He'd left school after O-levels. And I think both of them were determined that my sister and I would go to university because they felt that they'd missed out on on something. So um, we were always encouraged to to think in that direction. My dad, actually, he was a, you know, he he joined a, a firm of chartered surveyors. He worked his way up. He ended up as partner. He then started a business with two other colleagues. So he was a bit of an entrepreneur, really, but he never described himself as an entrepreneur. He'd always say self-employed or business owner or something <laughs> yeah. like that. So, you know, I, I went off to university with, you know, no thoughts of setting up a business. And really, I can't remember any discussion ever at university then about being an entrepreneur. It was always it was all about, you know, the kind of jobs that you could get and milk rounds and you know the typical stuff that universities did so you know that really wasn't on my radar technology in those days was just this really really remote thing but when I found this MSc course it was talking about how the technology industry at the time lacked people who could communicate you know fill the gap between the customer and programmers and kind of mm-hmm. you know communicate with both and I, I really thought well actually <laughs> that is something I thought I could do and that sounded quite interesting. Did you have to do quite a lot of technical work you know you actually get doing hands-on stuff at university how technical was it? Yeah so we um, we did these sort of kind of crash courses in in the different programming languages so COBOL and C and various kind of ancient mm-hmm things that were around not (laughs) not in a huge amount of depth but it was more about sort of teaching us the principles and you know anyone who's looked at code you know if you kind of understand how one language works you can transfer that between others but it did mean that I was you know kind of knew what was going on when I then went and got a job and had to talk to programmers and, mm-hmm. you know, could kind of relate to them. But um, no, it is valuable, actually. It really is. I, I, I think it's really invaluable. I'd love to see more young women studying kind of more technical subjects at university, because I think, you know, even if you don't end up going into a technical role, it's hugely powerful. It's a huge mm. advantage, and especially if you want to start your own business as well. That interests me that you did this MSc. I assume there weren't that many women on the course, Sarah. Actually, it, it, it wasn't too bad. It was probably about a third women. Wow. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. And, that, you know, there has been this strange thing that in, in the past, actually, there were lots of women working in the computer industry so several of our lecturers on the course you know been extremely senior in roles in computer science actually more recently numbers have declined I think you know just because for some reason computing's just become much more associated with 
with men. So it, mm. it's a bit of a shame, really. Mm. Mm-hmm. So coming on to the subject then of why it's been a depletion of women in the technology and doing degrees and 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 courses you started angel academy because you didn't see any of yourself you couldn't see women in there being pitched to for companies you 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 went around trying to find out how to be an angel investor and you realized that right that you didn't see many women in that community (laughs) no very few so occasionally you know you go to events and and there would be other women there but then it would turn out they were you know a lawyer and they were there kind of networking rather than there to invest or they were the event organizers so there there were very few women and it was kind of you know they were good fun well-run events and everyone was very nice and friendly but you know they were a little bit patronizing with me and uh, you know people would kind of make assumptions about what I was interested in investing in and sort of you know kind of say oh this baby wear company or (laughs) this shoe you know without asking you know and they just kind of (laughs) assume I felt a bit stereotyped but the other thing that I noticed was that if female founders ever came and pitched to those groups there really was quite a, a disconnect and it, it didn't matter what kind of business she was pitching there just tended to be a kind of intense focus on the financials and and just the conversation did not go as well and you know I think when people are investing they're almost looking to invest in a younger version of themselves so if you don't fit yeah. the mold then uh, you're less likely to succeed so you know, I really thought that there would be a it'd be a lot more a lot more fun for other women if there were more women in the room. And I also thought the conversation would be better, more varied. You know, there are various aspects you need to consider when investing in a business, and some of those aspects are better understood by women or as well understood by women. And I thought it would also be much more productive for female founders to be pitching to more diverse audiences. I think you mentioned that when women were pitching, they tended to get asked about the risk and about the downside rather than the positive side of profits. And so when men were asking the questions, they they tended to be quite negative in some respects. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I I definitely have seen that. And there's actually some research from an academic at um, London Business School, I think she is. And um, it's called prevention versus promotion questions and that women tend to be asked these prevention questions and as you say a focus on the downside and the risk whereas men are asked these promotion questions which allow them to sort of give this the very positive story and um, and according to this research that the the gender of the investor isn't that relevant but you know I, I must say that I think you know, when I've observed our network, which is, it isn't entirely female, it's mainly female, but, you know, everyone is really committed to supporting female founders. They really understand the challenges they, they face. So, you know, we're trying to understand the, <laughs> we're trying to avoid the prevention questions and ask positive questions. But obviously, you have got to understand the business and kind of potential risks and things like that. So um, asking challenging questions is absolutely the right thing to do. But yeah. you do need to ask the same questions of men and women. Sarah, you, so you started Angel Academy, as we said, in 2014. You launched this with your now husband, Simon Hopkins. You co-founded both of you together. 
From 2014 to present day, silly question, but you probably have had challenges. What do you think uh, would have been the big challenges for you in really getting Agile Academy off and away? So, so the main challenge has actually been building the angel side of the, the community. Um, there are all sorts of cultural and social barriers that mean that, you know, women are just less likely to invest in men and not just angel invest, but other asset classes as well. So relative to our wealth, women lag behind men in any sort of investment. So this was one of the kind of major social barriers that that we've had to overcome and still trying to overcome. I wonder why that is, Sarah. Do you have any idea about why? Is it because women earn less? They take longer to make money? You know, in many circumstances, that's still the case, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm well aware of the gender pay gap, but actually in terms of overall wealth in the UK, women own nearly half of it. So we're not investing because we don't have the money in many cases. I think that finances in a family are often controlled by the man, all sorts of sort of traditional role models. Women might just be less interested in finance they're less likely to have had a career in the financial industry so that's another sector where women are few and far between so there's a whole lot of other things and then you know there's this whole stereotype about women being more risk averse than men and rather than question assumptions it often means that financial advisors and people who know about things like angel investing and other types of investing just don't mention it to women or talk about different lower risk things. Mm. So it's a whole bunch of different things conspiring against us. Also, often the way that women make money. I mean, we have a lot of entrepreneurs in our network, some of them who've very successfully sold their businesses, but none of them raised money from angel investors along the way. So they just didn't meet angels and nobody talked to them about angel investing. So there's just generally a lack of awareness. A thing that came out of what you've just said there, Sarah, was the language and stereotyping. In order to communicate with people and in a community, an investment community, a technology community, women need to move and groove around that area, don't they? And sometimes we seem to be on the edge, don't we, and not able to be inside and really learning and talking. So before you even start investing as a woman, you need to be in the crowd. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. And most financial advisors are men. When I speak to them, they'll freely admit that their, you know, their classic client is another man. So all Mm. the, 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 you know, it's men selling to men and they understand how that works. And they're they're less good at um, selling to to women and understanding women. But yes, I mean, I I think our, our networks are often very different. Certainly when I get together with friends, I'm not usually talking about money and investments. It's something else. So we have different interests and different networks. So it all kind of conspires against it in a way. I think it's very true what you said earlier as well about people like to invest in someone or a younger version of themselves. Mm, it's something right. they understand. But you, you, you also need to know that this opportunity exists to to invest directly into a into a company, and and you know it's something that's quite hard to do on your own. Find those companies and then make a decision about the the best ones to invest in. So joining a network is is the way to 
to do it. And if those networks aren't speaking to women or no women are part of them, then, yeah, then we're sort of accidentally excluded, aren't we, from the conversation? Earlier on at the beginning of the interview, you mentioned investing a sensible amount Mm. rather than large amount. What would you consider a sensible amount? So our investment minimum per deal is £10,000. So, you know, I did say this is for people who've got a reasonable amount of money and it is a it's a high risk asset class so it does need to be money that you're not you're not going to need to see again soon because mm-hmm. it can it, it can be kind of held in that asset for quite a long time and you may not get all of it back as well so yeah. um I talk about a sensible proportion of your investable wealth the bulk of it needs to go into more traditional assets so you know property and pensions and things like that ices and those sort of things mm. and then this is your gamble know, really in some respects well, isn't it, 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 it <laughs> that's one way of putting it but we <laughs> like to think of ourselves as a it's a bit more informed than that and there are various strategies that you deploy in order to manage that risk so overall you can reduce your risk by doing certain things which you learn to do through experience and by being part of a network with other people who've who've done it before mm-hmm. mm. i think ten thousand pound isn't too much though i mean i i had in mind you know i was thinking if you were investing you'd probably have to invest 20 30 40 or fifty thousand. it is fairly at the low end if you did have expendable money and you you know you had that money sitting around and you could afford to do without it for sure um yeah. i don't think i don't think that's too much actually I think I, I, I think that you know our exposure to angel investing is often um, dragon's den isn't it mm. and, and yes. you know they're throwing <laughs> yeah. around large yes, amounts of money so you think you have to be like them but actually it's far more accessible than most people know and you know if you're investing in a group that we call them tickets the ticket size can be relatively modest and then we have this amazing tax break in the UK as well so you know if you put some money into a high risk early early stage startup company you'll then you'll get a tax credit back Mm -hmm. Well, that helps reduce our risk for a start. It so, does. Um, it does. Yeah. So, Sarah, now that you you have this award-winning Angel Academy business and it's working, you have women investors. Now, are women investors different to men in the sense, what do they want out of their investment? Are, are, are there two divides? Are men looking for something so much different to what women want? Or are we actually closing the gap in this 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 line? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. I think, you know, a a lot of women are interested in investing in things that have a social impact, not just a financial return. And a lot of female entrepreneurs are are kind of building businesses that have a social impact as well, some some sort of social impact. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I think that's great we can use our money not just for financial return but to achieve some sort of social goal as well Um, it is fantastic but as I always say to people that unless there's a good business with a financial return we're not going to be achieving the social impact so it it is important that even if this company is doing good in the world that we make sure that they're very good as businesses the people it's well run and the way they're approaching the problem is 
is right and likely to succeed. So um, I, I, I think we need to keep our hard-headed financial hats on as well. Yeah. Do you find that's really important now then to investors that there's a good environmental impact, you know, that, or, or lack of impact, I suppose, in the environment? Yeah. And all of these credentials are in place as well. Is that something that people are very keen on ensuring before they'll invest? Yeah, I think, I think that's, it's becoming more and more crucial, isn't it? Not, not just environmental, they talk about ESG, so environmental, social and governments, and actually the diversity piece and more women and other kinds of diversity very much comes under the, the S, the social impact and the G bit. So I think we've got a very strong ESG agenda anyway. But yes, of course, you know, climate change is a is a huge concern for people and people are very motivated to invest in businesses that are either doing something, as you say, that mitigates climate change. So, you know, technologies that reduce carbon emissions in the, the first place. And there are some amazing things out there. We've recently completed an investment in a company that helps in the tracking and the reporting of environmental and, <laughs> and social goals. So, you know, kind of trying to eliminate the greenwashing that's going on at the moment and we're very positive about those sort of businesses and I think there'll be a lot of interest in that space and of course we only want to invest in businesses that are kind of share our values and are well run and decent to their people and planet. Mm. It seems so refreshing to talk to you, Sarah, about your values when you're investing. I just don't imagine that ever happened when men started investing in companies that they wanted to secure the climate and make sure they, you know, the beginning of investment was all about making money. Is there not an element in your business that you just think, actually, we need to make some money? I mean, can you be so raw as to say that? Well, I I, I think we, we do need to make money and we do need to deliver returns to investors otherwise otherwise you know we're not sustainable as a business angel investing isn't sustainable because people will run out of money to to invest fairly quickly yeah but i think you can have purpose and profit at the same time absolutely um, well said and, and yeah and those purposes can vary you know not every business can do everything but you know they can tackle tackle different things and most of the companies that we've invested in are not making physical products they're doing things digitally and you know it's not like not claiming zero zero impact on the the climate but very much kind of reducing the impact by reducing the need for people to to travel for example or to buy new things or throw things away and we ask this to most of our women because most of you are very, very busy people. In your spare time, what do you get up to? Oh, um, <laughs> yes, not not a lot of spare time, but I, um, <laughs> I, I like to go walking. I live in Brighton, so occasionally go into the sea. <laughs> Ooh, brave woman. Um, I have, I, I've been a bit slack this year but I last wind swam all year and you know I like to see family and friends and eat out and all those normal things I I read a lot especially fiction helps turn my my mind off and and Sarah 
from a mentor or a hero in in the industry that you are in and the, the business industry and investing other women or, or men that you look up to or, or talk to that actually you you aspire to oh gosh i've been really lucky in my career most of my bosses were almost all of them were men and actually really 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 supportive and and good mentors so um shout out to them first people in the industry you know lots of them lots of women that have stuck their head about the parapet as um technologists as founders so um Edwina Dunn, for example, who founded Dunn Humby and Star Count. So, you know, she was a woman running a data business and um, did extremely well with that. So she's a she's a legend. And for future, for the Angel Academy itself, what what do you see as happening? I mean, you've you've done incredibly well. This is an award winning organisation. It's fantastic. So what's the future for you and and Simon Hopkins? We want to continue growing Angel Academy. We've grown every year. There are more and more women joining us as investors, which is absolutely fantastic to see. And I think that's what really changes the conversation. We've got some businesses that we've invested in that are doing extremely well. And we're, we're hoping for some very good exits with uh, with good returns for people and planet <laughs> and the the best thing well there's loads and loads of comments on your linkedin actually but i the the latest one i love this one it says sarah is a trailblazer in the angel investment space throughout my time with angel academy i have been inspired by sarah's perspective and vision the community she has built alongside the standards she has set is incredibly powerful and an exciting contribution to closing the equity gap in early stage investment. I mean, that wow. is a fantastic, yeah. fantastic. I have seen that one. I have to, uh, I have to send her her check later. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a wonderful paragraph to yeah. uh, about you, Sarah, and I think it really describes what you've been trying to do. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today, hasn't it? It's been it has really been. lovely. I've really enjoyed it. And likewise, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Rebecca Willers, the director at Shepworth Wildlife Park. Cambridge 105 Radio. Join me, Neil Jones, every Tuesday here on Cambridge 105 Radio for the very best from the world of rock. Every week we'll bring you big name interviews, all the latest from the local scene here in Cambridge and the very best rock songs around. It's two hours of rock every single Tuesday from nine o'clock with me, Neil Jones, right here across the city in South Cambridgeshire on Cambridge 105 Radio. Need dropping off at work? Miss the bus and must make that urgent appointment. Need picking up after a night out with your mates? Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715 715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. 
CKLG accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Sarah, one of CKLG's friendly tax advisors. Creating and preserving wealth is an aspiration for many of our clients. In our complex world of changing legislation and family circumstances, we listen and provide you and your family with bespoke tax advice tailored to your needs. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk. CKLG Accountants, your partner in business, your partner in life. Cambridge 105 Radio. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast. Brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. If you love animals, there can't be a better job in the world than working with them and protecting them. We're joined today by Rebecca Willers, who's been director of Shepworth Wildlife Park for over 21 years and manages the park with her father and brother. Rebecca has always been surrounded by animals as she was brought up in her family's wild animal sanctuary. And we're looking forward to finding out more. Thank you very much for joining us today, Rebecca. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Willer's Wild Animal Sanctuary started in 1979, I believe, as a private sanctuary. And it was a refuge for lots of different types of creatures. Was that started by your parents? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's my mum and dad. So originally, actually, my father bought the property because he was a builder. So he wanted to build houses and make some money and move on because that's what he did. And actually what's lovely is if you go into the Grafton Centre, the outside car park, there's some back streets there. And if you have a look, there's a whole row of cottages and it says Willis Cottages on there that my father built. So it's oh, lovely. Wow. So actually the, the intention wasn't to buy some land in 1979 and build a zoo, not at all far from it. But what happened was, is while they were there, they were both animal lovers. So they started off rescuing some animals they got known in the area for their animal love so then people started bringing animals to them and in those days it was a lot of RTAs so road traffic accidents maybe unwanted pets if people couldn't look after their animals anymore and then obviously as the years went on then it became like you know the zoos that closed down rescuing those ex-laboratory animals and those kind of things so it kind of went off on a tangent but in those early days it was very much kind of like your fox cubs that had been abandoned or the badger that had been hit by the car that kind of thing lots of hedgehogs so yes, that's why it was known as Willis Mill Wild Animal Sanctuary back in those days, because it really was a sanctuary. And they both had a passion for horses as well. So I remember as a child, we always had lots of paddocks with horses in, which now, now I look and I look at and I'm like, oh, there's a tiger enclosure there now. <laughs> <laughs> all, all very, very different. That's what I remember as a child. And how involved were you as a child in looking after these animals? Oh my goodness. Me and, um, well, I have actually several brothers and sisters. So as a child, it was my brother, Jake and Nick and uh, my sister, Alex, we were all very much involved in it so I have very young memories of milking cows and goats and putting <laughs> the chickens away and because those are the kind of the animals that we had in those days and I have vivid vivid memories of coming downstairs and there'd be an emu in the kitchen or the, uh, 
you in the corner of the house or a little squirrel monkey like you know tucked away somewhere you know I am talking by the way so this is back in the day you know back in the early 80s you know you wouldn't do these kind of things nowadays but you know anything that was poorly or injured or uh, needed a bit more tender loving care my mum was the ultimate nurse uh, because actually originally she was she was a nurse when my father first met her so everything was having that you know that extra special bit of love from her to make sure that it was patched up and ready to go back out in the wild if it could because ultimately as well that's what they wanted to do it wasn't about animals in captivity it was about getting these animals to the peak of their health and then getting them back out in the wild if they could be obviously not the emu and the the kinkajou and that kind of thing but yeah no I remember it was a proper little do little house with all sorts of animals coming and going all the time yeah it sounds like you had a sort of an idyllic childhood growing up with animals in the kitchen animals outside was it idyllic did you find that all your brothers and your sisters is there four of you by the way four of you four siblings Uh, uh, yeah I've got some other siblings now actually but um now running the zoo it's myself and my brother Nick right with our our father still you know he's in his 70s but he is out there building in his 70s he's a workaholic so just going back then to to the environment that you're brought up in so it wasn't a sort of a a gendered right environment you were all doing the same thing weren't you were all looking after the animals or helping your mum and dad I mean that's quite an interesting way of growing up isn't it it sounds quite a I don't it's know. very different. Obviously, we went to school. Yeah, <laughs> um, good. <laughs> um, but the difference is, is that we would come home from school and you wouldn't go in and go and watch TV or, or do homework or something. There would be some chores that you would have to do and it would involve the animals, of course, naturally. And then at weekends, it, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't do it nowadays, but weekends we were working and I remember that from a very very young age and I'm pretty sure my mum will back me up here I was running the cafeteria at like 12 years old which again I don't know if that was illegal back then but certainly that's what happened you know possibly was and you wouldn't you wouldn't do it nowadays you know do you know what I mean but back in those days that's what it was because you know it was all hands on deck we didn't do day trips as families. We went on the odd holiday, but, you know, you made a commitment. It was our lifestyle. It was the way of life. That, and of course, we knew no different as well. So for us, it was the norm. So were you intent on working with animals when you left the school? Because I know that you were a journalist for a little while. What was your plan yeah. when, you, when you left the school? Well, what's really funny is I've always worked at the zoo. Actually, I never took a break from the zoo because even when I went into, you're right, into publishing and journalism, I was still actually volunteering every weekend at the zoo because, actually, I never really left, because I was renting the flat at the zoo. So in order to pay my rent, I was working at the weekends. And because I just had such a passion, I didn't want to to leave it. But it was just one of those things, you know, I I did my A-levels. I wanted to be a barrister because I wanted to go that one step further and be like a basically like almost like the RSPCA if you like to actually get in there and be able to actually make a a tangible change to what was going on because I was so passionate about animal welfare and um, conservation etc and still obviously am today but but certainly I remember being very strong about that when I was like 17 18 wanting to stop any kind of cruelty to animals and stop poaching and and that was how I saw my way to do it but I took a gap year ended up with absolutely zero money and ended up working for this publishing house and that's how I kind of by default ended up in in journalism but my passion was always the zoo so I would rent the flat at the zoo so I could still be around those animals 24 7 and work there at weekends and then what happened was the manager of the zoo at the time handed her notice in and I think I was 2021 and my older brother Jake was running it with my father and they approached me and they said do you want to take the job (laughs) 
<laughs> and you couldn't resist. <laughs> no, no, but I was like, I was so scared. And by this point, I deferred university so many years that they were like, yeah, you, you don't want to be a lawyer, do you? you keep and um, I'd started a psychology degree, actually, by this point with the Open University. So I was like, well, I can do my degree. And, and yeah, but then I was like, but I, I don't have any formal quality. My A-levels, you know, uh, were all geared towards being um, a barrister. So I was like, I don't have any, like, animal qualifications, do I? So... I know what I'm doing because I've done it every weekend, but I took the plunge and I did it. So, and I've been oh. running away since I was 20 years old. So yeah, but then I went on and did a zoology degree and, and some other bits and bobs to, to make sure I had the qualifications because I was so young and some of the keepers were older than me. It was a bit like, do they have more experience than me? I'm quite nervous about that. And I was kind of one of those managers that I just thought I need to show that I know what I'm talking about. So that's why I went down that route, road as well. I'm just so, so grateful that I made that decision at 2021 because I've never looked back. And then I carried on doing the freelance journalism because actually I really enjoyed the writing side of it but I'm just so grateful that I made that decision to myself and so grateful to have had that opportunity because I, I cannot tell you the the love that we all have for that place it's just such a special place to be even just for your own well-being you know to be around the beauty of the animals but the trees and the lakes that dad's put in and things it's just such a people say that about the place that it's got this really kind of nice tranquil kind of family vibe to it and that's what we're trying to create it's it's a very healthy space to be in yeah it sounds as I said before an idyllic way of, of growing up and you said that 21 and 22 you made your decision to move into this career and even at 21 and 22 most people really don't know what they want to do did you feel confident all the way through your childhood I was really addicted to studying bizarrely as a child and um, so I think my main concern was that because i I'd deferred university twice that I kind of let myself down so I think as soon as I started doing first of all the psychology degree and then I went on and did the zoology degree as soon as I had those my confidence I think came there and, and then I went on and did the MBA as well which really really helped the business if I can call it a business although I don't like to to take that new conservation route that we needed to go down. I also did this like veterinary assistant course and things like that. And I do feel confidence with, I know not everyone does and people either learn on the job or they learn, but I felt more confident having those as a background to where I was coming from with my changes that I wanted to make to improve the welfare. But actually, I have to say the biggest change for Shepworth was probably when we joined the associations 15 years ago, whatever. We joined the National Association, Bayaza. After that, we joined EASA, the European Association. And as soon as you do that, and, you, and I'm quite an extrovert, I love mixing with people. So as soon as you start networking and meeting people at the conferences, listening to the talks and, the, and getting to know people's stories, and you suddenly have this whole wealth of knowledge that you kind of like as a little small, like, well, there's no wild animal sanctuary, we're doing it on our own. You suddenly go, wow, there's a whole world out there of professionals that are all just as passionate. And that is what it's about. You are never going to make it as a little tiny sanctuary on our own. We're never going to make the big steps and the changes and the behavior changes that we want to make. We are going to do that by networking and joining these breeding programs and joining these conservation initiatives and really getting out there and finding out what all the projects are that we can be involved with and what we should be doing to make those changes. Because I'm very, very passionate about the fact that we are not and we will never be just an attraction just to come and look at our animals. That's not what we're about because that's the old days of zoos. Yeah. We are about you come to us, 
you get inspired, your child is inspired, and they go on and they want to do something. Or we're going to inspire you to give us some money that we can then put into these projects back in situ. So these animals are acting as ambassadors. They're not just there for you to look at. And then the other side of that then is the fact that we then 10 years ago founded SWCC, the Shepworth Wildlife Conservation Charity, it came to a point where on one of our zoo licenses, they were like, you cannot be doing this anymore. You've got rescued animals. So you've got badgers coming in with possibly, you know, whatever untold viruses, et cetera. You've got foxes, cubs coming in. You've got hedgehogs coming in with ringworm, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got your captive healthy population. That doesn't work. And there's something called the Valerie approval that we had to get and we couldn't get it with basically what it would have meant is all those poorly animals coming in from the wild, they would have to be quarantined for 30 days uh, and it just wasn't working. Anyway, so basically Sally and I are chatting about this dad's in the office as well and I'm like, we need to build something you know, off the site basically so we can still do this. And also by this point, we'd started raising a bit of money here and there for a tiger project and that kind of thing. And we were like, we could do so much more if we were a charity, we could gift aid it and things like that. So that's where it came from basically, it's just a chat in the office going, right, we're gonna do this. And I'm so proud to tell you now, it's our 10th anniversary this year. We are so oh, super brilliant. excited. And we've raised half a million in that time so that's half a million that we wouldn't have had without that kind of like initial start but most importantly we got a hedgehog hospital out of it Five thousand hedgehogs <laughs> wow and this is the argument i know you'll have listeners here that are anti-zoo i know this and you know all members of born free or whatever but what i would say is there would be no hedgehog hospital Five thousand hedgehogs would not have been coming through our doors half a million pounds would not have been raised if we didn't have Shepworth Wildlife Park. And there is no difference between the word of a wildlife park, a zoo, a zoological park. Essentially, it's all the same thing. You know, you're keeping animals in captivity. But, you know, we've educated over a million children in, in the years that we've been open in formal education sessions, you know, that come from the school, et cetera. And these things are only possible by being there and being present. You attract the people in with the animals, but when you've got them there, that is when you do the work the important work the good work and don't get me wrong there are a thousand and one bad zoos out there we all know that in 2015 you went to indonesia to the tiger conservation and protection unit and you were bitten by something with quite serious effects tell us tell us what happened that sounded awful no, so that unfortunately is journalism error there so i wasn't bitten so basically the condition i have is a autoimmune basically that I have now which obviously have a life but it was obviously there it was going to come out at some point what they think happened is that it was triggered while I was there so basically I got obsessed with extreme challenges and I would get zoo directors um so again this is all part of the networking thing I think I was probably at a conference one night probably in a bar and went why don't we swim the ocean or something <laughs> like that so I got a team together and we, we swam the channel. And then I think it was like, you know, the following conference, well, we've, we've done swimming now, so why don't we do something else? So let's climb the mountains, then we climb Killy. So these people were all zoo directors, and the idea was to get directors together from other zoos, because there was another kind of PR side to it as well, is that the challenge was great. And yes, we were raising money, which was fabulous, because we were all raising money for our own projects. But then make it like an international or a national PR kind of like, all these zoo directors are doing this for saving this project and that project is suddenly limelighted and that was the the point of that and especially when this is what you're um, talking about now is this marching trek we had I think 10 of us went over there 10 directors from zoos from all over 
And what was great is that we highlighted the Tiger Protection Conservation Unit project. Uh, not so much, maybe we got a bit of publicity in the UK, but in Indonesia, it went all over the press, which was just fabulous. It really kind of got some exposure out. So we were out there, uh, we were broken up into smaller units because obviously we were too big as nine directors because of all the anti-poaching people we had with us. So I was broken down into a unit with two of my very close uh, friends, other zoo directors, and then we had these three anti-poachers with us. And my two zoo friends got super ill. When I say ill, these ladies were just so poorly for one or two days that you're just like, how they actually got out of their sleeping bag to keep trekking that day was just a miracle because it was a really hard slog. And then the anti our anti-poaching team also got sick. And I'm like, oh, I'm next. And I just never got ill. Felt fine the entire time. Basically, as soon as I got back to the UK, my symptoms started within a few weeks. And then it took obviously, you know, the six, nine months to get the diagnosis because it's such a rare condition. Um, and when I was talking to my GP, my consultant, et cetera, they were like, it could be that my immune system went into such an overdrive to protect myself from those viruses or whatever it is those, those poor friends of mine had. It just triggered it. And yeah, and I got super ill. So if you Google it, it's, you know, it's one of these things you should never, I was told by my consultant, you should never have Googled it. Because um, it says, you know, you've got two to five years, basically. Uh, and I had um, a month or so where I hadn't, they needed to do all the tests. So you're waiting for the results. And it's where you're like, Mm, could be dead in five years it was a weird experience I'm kind of glad that I went through it in a way because it kind of makes you realize what it is that your experience would would go through in your head when you really genuinely think you're in that place and for me it was like god my mum's going to be devastated oh what am I going to I need to make sure she's going to you know it's those kind of things you start thinking about everyone else because you're going to be gone so you don't really I mean this is just my take on it and I've mm-hmm. talked about it um, like that because obviously people do go through these things actually and, and then yeah so anyway for me I'm just a very 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 lucky human being in the fact that they diagnosed me so early so I had no damage to my organs because it's you know your lungs and heart that you have to worry about and they put me on the treatment and I didn't have an adverse effect to the treatment the immunosuppressants and here I am uh, literally five years later still kind of going with the treatment and it's all working I mean don't get me wrong this time of year is horrendous for me because I have uh, Raynaud's now as a secondary syndrome as well so like can't feel my hands and toes for most of most of the winter and I think they joke don't they they say you should go to a hot country this time of year (laughs) yeah the cold triggers my disease which is a bit of a yeah and it can make you really sluggish and um quite lethargic and tired I guess it's similar to the COVID symptoms yeah so the whole COVID time must have been I'm assuming for for you you'd have had to have isolated but also for the wildlife park as well because you couldn't have visitors in that must have been a horrible time yeah, it was hell, as it was for everyone. So I couldn't isolate. I was supposed to. I got all the letters, but I, I, I wasn't stupid. I rang my consultant and I said, I've got business. I can't isolate. I have to go into work every day. And so they just say what they have to say, don't they? Well, can you avoid this and that? And anyway, yeah, our staff were incredible. The team were just amazing all throughout. And the public support we got was out of this world it was so humbling there was one moment when I burst into tears and that's when um, it wasn't far into after the 20th of March that first time probably a week or two weeks in I opened a letter and it was from this amazing couple in Norfolk that had visitors love our capybara etc and there was a check in there it was 10 grand oh wow wow and I was like you will you will never believe this I mean honestly I just even to this day I'm like I can't believe they did that but then the support that came in was just overwhelming so we had to diversify quickly so we started doing all these virtual experiences we started really pushing the shop if you want to help us because also we're not beggars we don't want to be asking for money but we're quite happy to sell stuff though you know so we were like 
by an adoption, by an experience, by this, by this, by, you know, because then you don't feel bad, do you? Because yeah, money's yeah. coming in, but you're getting something back, so it's fine. But the, the donations did come in. It was incredible. And in that first year, we had over £100,000 worth of public support. And it's not just about the financial side of it, actually, as well. It's also about the fact that there is love out there for wildlife, for animals, for our conservation work, for our hedgehog hospital, for us, for, for Shepworth Wildlife Park that you are showing us your support and the fact that you don't want us to go downhill, that you want us to be here. And that is what is overwhelming. And that is what kept the morale up in our team. Because every time we got a donation, every time we got an Amazon wish lift gear or whatever it was, we'd radio down and say, hey guys, guess, guess what happened today? Because we knew it was keeping them going. Them as well, it was just such, um, it was so lonely, right? And don't forget, a lot of our keepers are extroverts, but also for them, it's like they've suddenly lost their flip. I say their purpose, their purpose is to be, to be there to give the highest welfare standards they can and the husbandry and all the richment and the stuff of the animals they love. But the other purpose is that we're there for a reason. We're there to educate people about what's going on. Suddenly you've lost that because it's going back to this idea of behaviour change. I mean, I can give you some stories like um, I'll never forget many, many, many years ago when we first started doing our Tiger Day events. I'll never forget this little girl, Libby. She must have been like six or seven at the time. And she came and listened to the Tiger Talk. And I was like, oh, we've actually got Tiger Day tomorrow. So I'm really sorry you're here like a day too early. And they couldn't come back for Tiger Day. But then she wrote afterwards and she was like, oh, like what you told me about the tigers, I'm so sad. Because I think it was when I was doing my swims as well, because I used to do lots of sponsored swims. She was like, so I've swam. I don't know what she'd done in the time, but like for her age, it was incredible what she'd done. And she'd raised all this money. Anyway, Libby went on to raise money year after year after year. Her mum ended up being a trustee. She's now like, it's got to be like 18, 19 or something now. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying Shepworth, we're just a little, little tiny place, but we're trying to make that difference. Very interesting what you said then about educating people as well do you get children asking you is this viable well you know would it would it be an interesting thing for me to do you know is that something that people approach you with uh, as in how to get into our industry yeah uh, oh, absolutely oh, sorry they always so we're always asked to attend career days um at universities and and oh, we, uh, what i haven't mentioned of course is that when i say our team mm. i'm not just talking about our paid keepers we also have something like 100 students that come to us every year so that they either come on we lots of different scenarios where it's either work experience or it's part of like a sandwich gap year so they'll take a whole year out to come to us in, in their university years or they might just need to come and do a couple of weeks block for their course they're doing so um we can only take over 18 unfortunately because of our, our uh, insurance issue sure. um, but those guys then are getting especially the guys that come for their sandwich year they're getting full training so they're being trained like they are a keeper so they're getting that kind of industrial kind of industry knowledge to kind of if nothing else actually it gives them that kind of is this the career i really want to be doing yes yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely you know? yeah which really helps but also gets their foot in the door at somewhere else to say oh i've done a year's experience so we have kind of that side at Shepworth as well and again you know you only have to talk to a couple of our keepers and they'll let you know that they are literally passing every bit of knowledge that they can because they see it's really cute it's like they see these guys as like their their protégés and they do feel proud especially when they go on and that they find that they've then moved to Chester Zoo or they've moved to here or they moved yeah. to and it's like oh we're like that little stepping stone for them up and you often when you're out and about 
if you're feeding an animal and a child stops you like oh how do I get into this what we always say is you do need the education background mainly because as well you're always going to be up against a lot of CVs we put a job that out uh, as you can imagine yeah. and a thousand and one people will apply to it because I can imagine because it's yeah because it's a lovely career to be in it's um working mm. with animals mm. and so you you kind of need both yeah you need that kind of hands-on volunteering yeah. wherever you can get it even if it's in a vet's you know um to get you going with domestic animals to move on then to the wild animals well all i can say is move over david attenborough here comes <laughs> rebecca willis because i just think you are brilliant i you know it's so nice it's so refreshing to see women and you do what you do and it's it's wonderful isn't it linda it is it really is i don't know how you got the energy and an autoimmune disease as well, actually, which, you know, I mean, you're, you're swimming the channel and running and looking oh, sure. after all of these animals. My goodness. <laughs> I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you, Rebecca. It's been absolutely brilliant. And thank you very much for taking some time out. And, you know, let's not stop you having the next run now. Dear, so you're off to do that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank, oh, thank you, you Rebecca. so much for having me on here. It's lovely. Thank you. That's all we have time for in this episode of Women Making Waves. We've had a great time talking about investments and animal conservation. We'd like to thank our guests, Sarah Turner and Rebecca Willers. You can also contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. <laughs>